Thank you, Richard, and good morning, everyone. Um, as Richard said, today we begin a major new study on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And my task this morning is to give you a sort of an overview of the book, a helicopter view, which will help orient us through the detailed studies that follow. To help us get underway, I would like to begin by reading a single verse from chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, turn to chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Now over to the end of the letter, we're going to read the last four verses of chapter 15. So 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 55. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, if we knew nothing about the church in Corinth, the words, those words from Paul might seem unexceptional. He begins by thanking God for them, because God has given his grace to them, and he ends the letter with a sense of assurance that they have victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. However, the letter itself reveals a church that looks like a complete mess. It was riven with division and argument. People belong to various factions within the church. But at an even, deep, even deeper level, the Christians at Corinth had drunk from the poison of a sexually chaotic culture, so much so that they justified sexual immorality to each other. Their whole way of thinking was godless and worldly. Very few of them thought spiritually about anything. To be honest, Corinth was such a mess that most Christian leaders today would quietly advise that the thing be shut down. One of the marvelous aspects of the Apostle Paul's life is his faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. His faith in that gospel to transform apparently hopeless situations. And right at the outset, I want to rebuke my own heart, and possibly your heart too, for losing confidence in the gospel. Like Corinth, we live in a profoundly pagan, sexually chaotic society. We worry that the hours your children spend on TikTok will degrade their minds, grinding them down into godless and worldly pattern, thought patterns. Those of you who are grandparents or parents know all too well that rising sense of fear and pessimism that can often strike. The situation seems too hopeless, too bad. The challenge of raising a godly Christian household can feel so impossible in this culture so we need to listen to Paul as he writes into a situation that seems even more impossible. And we discover that he has this unshakable, joyful confidence in the gospel's ability to transform us. Now, I'm not talking about unbelievers here. My point is that Paul believes with all his heart that the gospel can transform our lives, the, our ways of thinking, the characters of believers who must live in a pagan society. And the point I just made explains why 1 Corinthians is such a long book. If rule-keeping and legalism worked, then 1 Corinthians would have been completed in a few paragraphs. Stop arguing with each other, 
stop being sexually immoral, stop being disloyal to Christ, stop using church as a way to gain preeminence. The end. A, a, a really poor visiting preacher to Corinth might have given them a terrible scold and enjoyed his Sunday lunch afterwards thinking that he had read them the riot act. But scolding never works. The really interesting tactic Paul uses throughout this letter is that he takes every issue and he examines it from first principles in the light of the gospel. He shows that the gospel has a better answer than all the pagan ideologies that have infected the minds of the Corinthian believers. And that is a lesson which those of us who stand at this lectern have to learn quickly. It's wonderful to be able to preach the gospel invitation to unbelievers holding out the word of life. But when it comes to the, the challenges faced by believers in a pagan world, we often fall back on rule keeping. Christians don't do that sort of thing. Well, that's not a helpful answer in this culture, whether it comes from a Bible teacher or a parent. So my introductory point is that Paul attacks these deep problems by showing how the Christian gospel has better answers to life, more rational and appealing answers than the pagan ideologies promoted by the prevailing culture. So how does he do that? Well, the big idea in 1 Corinthians is that the letter explains the Christian view of what it means to be a human being. Now, if I had uttered that sentence 20 years ago, it would have been greeted by gargantuan yawns from the audience. I'm just looking around in a check. But think of all the culture wars uh, in our society now. Transgenderism, abortion, homosexuality, euthanasia, the whole diversity, equity and inclusion agenda. Behind all those issues lies one simple question. What is a human being? If we aren't clear on that point, no amount of moralizing will do any good. Imagine that in a moment of wild generosity. I gave you a brand new car. It's a beautiful machine, a Mercedes S-Class with sumptuous leather seats, parking sensors, and all the other wonderful gadgets produced by German engineers. And after some weeks, I call around to see how you're enjoying your new car, and you proudly show me that you have filled it to the level of the dashboard with topsoil and have planted a range of winter vegetables in it. It's the best greenhouse I have ever had, you tell me. You can't use a Mercedes S-Class as a greenhouse, I protest. It's against the rules. Well, you sighed loudly. You promised to remove the soil from the car, and a month later I come to visit, and I am distressed to hear the sound of clucking chickens coming from the interior of the car. This car is the best chicken coop I have ever had, you tell me. And before you criticise me again, I have checked there is nothing in the manual which forbids me from keeping chickens in my car. So don't you try to impose your stupid rules on me. This is my car now, and I'll do what I want. Well, I suppose this charade could go on for quite some time. But at some point, it might dawn upon me that you aren't entirely sure what a car is for. What is a car, after all? What is its purpose? Until we get a clear understanding of that question, then our conversations will continue to be fractious. Listen in on a passionate, frustrated conversation between a Christian mother and her teenage daughter. I feel bad even saying this, but... A surface conversation about rules will not really resolve the deep problem. You could well have competing views of what a human being is. What does it mean to be human? What is the purpose of this thing I call my body? Or have I been given a mind and a conscience and emotions and the ability to make moral choices? But for what purpose? What is this thing for? 
For the remainder of this study, I'm going to give three answers that 1 Corinthians gives to that question. We are men and women. We are members of the body of Christ. And we have an eternal future. So that's going to be the structure of the talk. Three points, just about every sermon I give. That's three points. Now, as you can see from the map, the country of Greece is divided into a northern region and a southern region. And the two regions are separated by a narrow neck of land, which at one point is only four miles wide. Now, today, a canal allows ships to sail east to west without having to go right round the bottom of Greece, or the south, to be technical. But in ancient times, ships were loaded, uh, unloaded at one side of this neck of land, and then the cargo was transported by land for four miles before being loaded onto another ship. And sometimes, small ships were actually dragged across this strip of land in their entirety. And the city of Corinth controlled this strategic route. It was a hub of trade. It was renowned for sailors behaving as sailors have always behaved when in port. So just outside Corinth, a mountain rose steeply. And at its summit sat a temple dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of love and sex. Hundreds of temple prostitutes conducted their business in the temple because Corinthian society approved of their behavior on ideological and religious grounds. We can well imagine how a society like that would demean the concept of womanhood. Young women growing up in Corinth, when they saw the impact of the great idol that towered over their city, would inevitably have a distorted view of their own worth and the value of their own bodies. On the other side of the city stood a second temple. This one was dedicated to the Roman god Apollo. Some bits of that temple remain standing today. That's the photo on the screen. Apollo was supposed to represent the creative side of life, so he was the patron of art and music. And according to Roman mythology, Apollo was bisexual. Very strange thing for a god to be, but anyway. He had a string, apparently, of male lovers in his past. So homosexuality was entirely normalized in Corinthian society. Well, you say, we don't have temples dedicated to sex on the skyline of our cities today. But nothing much has changed. Our most important civic buildings are regularly lit up with the insignia of the LGBT movement. Any criticism, even if it is articulated in a rational and courteous manner, is ruthlessly suppressed by the ruling elite. I see very little difference between the way the ancient world enforced its pagan ideologies and the means used by our own society. It was into this kind of society that Paul brought the gospel. Let's now read some verses from chapter 6. We're going to break into the middle of verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It is clear from these verses that some of the founding members of the Corinthian church came from the city's LGBT community. Praise God, they had been gloriously saved. They had repented of their sin and had come to the Savior for forgiveness and cleansing and healing. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, says Paul. Many other founding members had come from a background where sexual immorality was normalized. They were true believers, 
But the gospel still had to complete years of work of transformation so that false ideas about being a human being got replaced by true ones. And that is the context in which we should understand Paul's long arguments about gender distinctiveness in the church. Chapters 11 through 14, which deal with the role of women, are usually regarded by Christians today as a source of embarrassment. But Paul is in the business of restoring the imago dei, the creatorial order that distinguishes between men and women. Sometimes children and teenagers can feel dislocated from their peers. They sense that they are different. That brings a profound sense of loneliness. The rise of autism has exacerbated the problem. But clever academics and woke progressives have constructed a set of false categories of being human. And sometimes teenagers can embrace one of them, believing that the influencers on their social media feeds, uh, they believe that a particular sexual identity will help them make sense of who they are. If I adopt this identity, then my feelings of being different will be validated. I will know who I am. (coughs) A Christian parent cannot counter that reality with a rule. A simplistic that's wrong statement cannot stand against the flood of identitarian propaganda that floods the minds of teenagers these days. We need to tell the better story, the good and beautiful vision of humanity held out by the gospel. So let me tell it to you now to some confused young person. You are a magnificent, physical, moral, rational, spiritual creature of gender. You have a soul that will last forever. God has spoken your identity to you. So lean on that truth rather than the chaotic, fickle feelings that churn around in your own head. Anyone who tells you to follow your heart is an idiot. Now, I'm not saying that feelings are unimportant. They're very important. But the human heart is a labyrinth of confusing and confused, self-deceptive and idolatrous thoughts. So the heart makes for a perfectly terrible guide in life. The second headline I want to draw from 1 Corinthians is that we're members of the body of Christ. These raw converts in Corinth met on Sundays just as we do. But they had brought all their worldly thinking into church life. Some saw church as a way of gaining and exercising power, so they formed factions that struggled for supremacy inside the church. Others took pride in their so-called liberty and didn't care at all how their actions affected brothers and sisters who had a more sensitive conscience. One of the key issues Paul highlights in chapters 8 through 11, or 8 through 10, <coughs> excuse me, is about the ethics of eating food that had been offered to idols. In first century Corinth, the best restaurants in town were in the pagan temples. Before the meal was served, the food was offered to the idols whose images dominated the space in which the people ate and talked together. Now, some of the Corinthian Christians just shrugged their shoulders and said that idols were just lumps of stone. So waving their sirloin steak in front of a lump of stone was just a silly little ritual that could be ignored. But other Christians felt in their hearts that there was something sinister and anti-Christian about pagan idolatry, so they would not eat in the temples. That ruined their business lives, of course. Now, imagine you witnessed uh, a row between two businessmen in this Corinthian church. You overhear one businessman complain that the other one is participating in all sorts of sinister pagan rituals in the temple of Aphrodite. 
And then you see the other businessman shrug his shoulders and say, well, I'm doing what I think is right. You live your life, I'll live mine. I have the freedom to do whatever I think is right, and don't you dare encroach on my freedom. Now, a conversation like that reveals that worldly thinking has seeped into church life. Our culture defines freedom as the absence of constraints. Provided I don't murder you with a knife, uh, then I am free to do whatever I want with my life. The old notion of loving your neighbour as yourself is replaced with tolerate your neighbour. And the consequences for a society that believes in freedom like that are disastrous. In the long run, the very notion of community life will become impossible. We won't even smile at each other at the Tesco checkout because the Amazon delivery guy brings us the items we've clicked on uh, on a computer screen. Autonomy, the modern notion of freedom, is the freedom to be alone. So, just as modelling gender distinctiveness is a countercultural witness, so the very notion of a local church, of a community, is a witness. It's a community in which members put the interests of others above their own. We see each other as different organs in the body. The liver knows that it could not survive alone. It needs the lungs and the heart, but they need the liver, so with us. One of the ways the gospel saves us is that we are placed in the body of Christ. But for a church to work, all that worldly thinking about autonomy, the thinking that refuses to allow others to constrain our actions, has to be ditched. <coughs> it's interesting that in Corinthians, Paul introduces another metaphor for the church. He calls it a temple, the temple of God. And given what we discussed earlier, that is really significant, isn't it? Because Corinth had two great temples, one dedicated, dedicated to Aphrodite, the other to Apollo. And both acted as major hubs or centers of gravity for the culture. But all over the ancient world, new temples were being built. They weren't made of stone or marble. They were little groups of believers who formed part of the temple of God. And in a relatively short period of time, they became the center of gravity in the ancient world. Soon the old pagan temples became overgrown with weeds. The carved doors rotted. The marble floors were used as a quarry site. <coughs> My point is this, brothers and sisters. Let us not lose our nerve. If Christ does not come for us, rest assured that the great idolatrous temples that dominate our cultural landscape will go the way of all pagan temples. They will collapse and rot, reduced to a haunt of jackals and desert isles. But the temple of which we are part will last forever and ever. So let's refuse to be intimidated. Let's feel something of the sheer grandeur of the structure into which we have been placed. Now I'm actually making a really practical point here for parents. If you can instill a sense of confidence about church into your children, they will inhabit, for, inhabit it for all of their lives. But if all they hear is continual carping and criticism, <coughs> They will ask themselves why on earth they shouldn't have, had, shouldn't have a better time in the temple of Aphrodite. It's actually a really simple equation. Your children will almost certainly not be more loyal to church than you are. So it might be time to ask yourself if you really believe what this letter says, that we are members of the body of Christ. So we've thought about two themes of 1 Corinthians so far. We are men and women. 
The gospel will restore people in a sexually chaotic culture to the beautiful and good vision of Genesis 1. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That was the first point. Second, we are members of the body of Christ. The gospel will rescue us from that sort of freedom. That is the freedom to be alone. The church offers us the chance to live radiant lives embedded in a network of rich relationships. If you want to save and protect your children, then commit yourself to building the temple of God. Make it the center of gravity in your family life, because if you don't, one day your children may start to visit the temple of Aphrodite. Our final point is that we have an eternal future. In this moment, I am primarily addressing those of you who have at times struggled with the idea that your life is futile. Perhaps your house isn't a noisy buzz of children arguing while dogs bark excitedly. Maybe you use a fork to prick the plastic cover of a microwavable meal for one. With age comes a perspective that cannot avoid feelings of regret and disappointment. Unbelievers know this feeling very well. I remember once preaching a message from Psalm 1. That psalm contrasts the fruitful tree planted by a stream, and it contrasts that with the chaff that floats in the wind during the threshing process. And afterwards, a highly intelligent, erudite man approached me. He made no attempt to introduce himself to me. He stood there, a tear running down his face, and he said, I am chaff. The temples of Aphrodite and Apollo are for the young. Any older gay man will tell you that without hesitation. So culture has nothing except to say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. What does it mean to be human? If death is the end, then life has no significance. There is no one to mark our final exam. And an unaccountable life is a meaningless life. Well, Paul ends his letter with a long discussion about this subject. He says in chapter 15, verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. He goes on to say, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Sometimes even believers can succumb to a desire just to give up. Listen to the voices from culture and you'll hear nothing but the cries to legalize euthanasia. Those are the voices of people who have completely lost any understanding of what it means to be human. You have a soul that will last forever and ever. One day our broken old bodies will be replaced with new glorified bodies. We will feel the grass of the new earth in between our toes. How do we know that? In my favorite verse in the whole letter, Paul says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Brothers and sisters, there now stands on the other side of death a glorified man, a resurrected man. And so our hope of the world to come is not some flimsy fiction told to comfort frightened children. 
our hope rests on the objective historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we can view our current circumstances, even if they're full of sadness and quiet regret, we can view them in the light of a glorious future. We have an eternal future. But we don't just grit our teeth and wait for the world to come. I began this study by reading chapter one, or a bit of chapter one of Paul's letter. And verse nine of that chapter says, God has called you into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I have deliberately left the central feature of this letter to the end. Paul's whole sense of being, his entire understanding of his identity is framed and expressed in terms that relate to Christ. He tells the Corinthian believers they have received grace from Christ. They have been enriched by him. The truthfulness of his words have been confirmed to them and they're on a great journey that will transform them into a holy people as they wait Christ's return to take them home to heaven. Jesus Christ stands at the heart of the Christian worldview. He is its center and son. He is the source of all that is real and good and noble and true. The gospel transforms us by bringing us into personal fellowship with Christ and his enriching life, his moral grandeur, shows up the temples of Aphrodite and Apollos to be the shabby counterfeits that they are. So in the midst of this pagan culture, the gospel can restore us to the Imago Dei, men and women made in the image of God. It will embed us within the body of Christ and it will infuse us with the hope of an eternal future. I close with Paul's final words. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you, Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. We'll sing a final hymn and then I will close in prayer. <laughs>